Chapter 25 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2, by John Jay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 25. The Retirement of Cass. Thus far, Mr. Buchanan's policy of conciliation through concession had brought him nothing but disappointment, and whatever faint hope his loyal cabinet advisers may have had at the outset in its saving efficacy was by practical experiment utterly destroyed. The non-coercion doctrine had been adopted as early as November 20, in the Attorney General's opinion of that date. The fact was rumored, not only in the political circles of the capital, but in the chief newspapers of the country. And the three secession members of the cabinet had doubtless communicated it confidentially to all their prominent and influential Confederates. Since that time, South Carolina had continued her preparation for secession with unremitting industry. Mississippi had authorized a convention and appointed commissioners to visit all the slave states and propagate disunion, among them Mr. Thompson, Buchanan's Secretary of the Interior, who afterwards exercised this insurrectionary function while yet remaining in the cabinet. The North Carolina legislature had postponed the election of the United States Senator. Florida had passed a convention bill. Georgia had instituted legislative proceedings to bring about a conference of the southern states at Atlanta. Both houses of the National Congress had rung with secession speeches, while frequent caucuses of the conspirators took place at Washington. Mr. Buchanan's truce with the South Carolina representatives had as little effect in arresting the secession intrigues as his non-coercion doctrine officially announced in the annual message. On the evening of the day, December 8, on which he received the South Carolina pledge, the Secretary of the Treasury, Powell Cobb of Georgia, tendered his resignation, announcing in the same letter his intention to embark in the active work of disunion. It had been generally understood that the non-coercion theories of the message were adopted by the President in deference to the wishes and under the influence of Cobb, Thompson, and Floyd. And undoubtedly, they had also been largely instrumental in bringing about the unofficial truce at Charleston. If, amid all his fears, Mr. Buchanan retained any sensibility, he must have been profoundly shocked at the cool dissimulation with which Mr. Cobb, everywhere recognized as a cabinet officer of great ability, had assisted in committing the administration to these fatal doctrines and measures, and then abandoned it in the moment of danger. My withdrawal, he wrote to the president, has not been occasioned by anything you have said or done. Whilst differing from your message upon some of its theoretical doctrines, as well as from the hope so earnestly expressed that the Union can be preserved, there was no practical result likely to follow which required me to retire from your administration. 
That necessity is created by what I feel it my duty to do, and the responsibility of the act, therefore, rests alone upon itself. Ignoring the fact that the Treasury was prosperous and solvent when he took charge of it, and that at the moment of his leaving it could not pay its drafts, Mr. Cobb, five days later, published a long and inflammatory address to the people of Georgia, concluding with this exhortation, I entertain no doubt either of your right or duty to secede from the Union. Arouse, then, all your manhood for the great work before you, and be prepared on that day to announce and maintain your independence out of the Union, for you will never again have equality and justice in it. The President had scarcely found a successor for Mr. Cobb when the head of the Cabinet, Lewis Cass, Secretary of State, tendered his resignation also and retired from the administration. Mr. Cass had held many offices of distinction, had attained high rank as a Democratic leader, and had once been a presidential candidate. His resignation was therefore an event of great significance from a political point of view. The incident brings into bold relief the mental reservations under which Buchanan's paradoxical theories had been concurred in by his cabinet. A private memorandum in Mr. Buchanan's handwriting, commenting on the event, makes the following emphatic statement. His resignation was the more remarkable on account of the cause he assigned for it. When my late message of December 1860 was read to the cabinet before it was printed, General Cass expressed his unreserved and hearty approbation of it, accompanied by every sign of deep and sincere feeling. He had but one objection to it, and this was that it was not sufficiently strong against the power of Congress to make war upon a state for the purpose of compelling her to remain in the Union. And the denial of this power was made more emphatic and distinct upon his own suggestion. But this position was probably qualified and counterbalanced in his mind by the President's direct promise that he would collect the federal revenue and protect the federal property. In the nature of things, the execution of this policy must not only precede, but exclude all other theories and abstractions, and the Secretary of State probably waited in good faith to see the President execute the laws. Little by little, however, delay and concession rendered this impossible. The collector at Charleston still nominally exercised his functions as a federal officer, but it was an open secret among the Charleston authorities, and one which must also by this time have become known to the government at Washington, that he was only holding the place in trust for the coming secession convention. As to protecting the federal property, the refusal to send Anderson troops, the president's truce, the gradual development of Mr. Buchanan's irresolution and lack of courage, and finally, Mr. Cobb's open defection must have convinced Mr. Cass that under existing determinations, orders, and influences, it was a hopeless prospect. The whole question seems to have been finally decided in a long and stormy cabinet session held on December 13. The events of the few preceding days had evidently shaken the President's confidence in his own policy. He startled 
his dissembling and conspiring Secretary of War with the sudden questions. Mr. Floyd, are you going to send recruits to Charleston to strengthen the forts? Don't you intend to strengthen the forts at Charleston? The apparent change of policy alarmed the Secretary, but he replied promptly that he did not. Mr. Floyd, continued Mr. Buchanan, I would rather be in the bottom of the Potomac tomorrow than that these forts in Charleston should fall into the hands of those who intend to take them. It will destroy me, sir, and Mr. Floyd, if that thing occurs, it will cover your name with an infamy that all time can never efface, because it is in vain that you will attempt to show that you have not some complicity in handing over those forts to those who take them. The wily secretary replied, I will risk my reputation. I will trust my life that the forts are safe under the declarations of the gentlemen of Charleston. This is all very well, replied the president, but does that secure the forts? No, sir, but it is a guarantee that I am in earnest, said Floyd. I am not satisfied, said the president. Thereupon, the secretary made the never-failing appeal to the fears and timidity of Mr. Buchanan. He has himself reported the language he used. I am sorry for it, said he. You are president. It is for you to order. You have the right to order, and I will consider your order when made. But I would be recreant to you if I did not tell you that this policy of garrisoning the forts will lead to certain conflicts. It is the inauguration of civil war and the beginning of the effusion of blood. If it is a question of property, why not put an ordnance sergeant into them, a man who wears worsted epaulets on his shoulders and stripes down his pantaloons as the representative of the property of the United States? That will be enough to secure the forts. If it is a question of property, he represents it, and let us wait until the issue is made by South Carolina. She will go out of the Union and send her commissioners here. Up to that point, the action is insignificant. Action after this demands the attention of the great council of the nation. Let us submit the question to Congress. It is for Congress to deal with the matter. This crafty appeal to the president's hesitating inclinations, and in accord with his policy hitherto pursued, was seconded by the active persuasions of the leading conspirators of Congress, whom Floyd promptly called to his assistance. I called for help from that bright saladin of the South, Jefferson Davis of Mississippi, and I said, come to my rescue. The battle is a little more than my weak heart can support. Come to me. And he came. Then came that old, jovial-looking, noble-hearted representative from Virginia, James M. Madison. Here came that anomaly of modern times. The youthful Nestor, here came Hunter. From the North, the South, the East, and the West, there came up the patriots of the country, the champions of constitutional liberty, and they talked with the President of the United States, and they quieted his fears and assured him in the line of duty. They said, let there be no force, and the President said to me, I'm content with your policy, and then it was that we determined that we would send no more troops to the harbor in Charleston. Strip this statement of its oratorical exaggeration, and the reader can nevertheless see, in the light of after-occurrences, a vivid and truthful picture of a conspiring cabal. 
stooping to arts and devices difficult to distinguish from direct personal treachery, flattering, threatening, and coaxing by turns, and finally lulling the fears of the president through his vain hope that they would help him tide over a magnified danger and shift upon Congress a responsibility he had not the courage to meet. Mr. Cass, however, could no longer be quieted. Through all the rhetoric, sophistry, and bluster of the conspirators, he saw the diminishing resources of the government and the rising power of the insurrection. With a last bold effort to rouse the president from his lethargy, he demanded, in the cabinet meeting of the 13th, that the forts should be strengthened. But he was powerless to break the spell, says Floyd. The president said to him in reply, with a beautiful countenance and with a heroic decision that I shall never forget, in the council chamber. I have considered this question. I am sorry to differ from the Secretary of State. I have made up my mind. The interests of the country do not demand a reinforcement of the forces in Charleston. I cannot do it, and I take the responsibility of it upon myself. The letters which were exchanged between the President and his Premier set out the differences between them with the same distinctness. Mr. Cass, after premising that he concurred with the general principles laid down in the message, says, In some points which I deem of vital importance, it has been my misfortune to differ from you. It has been my decided opinion, which for some time past I have urged at various meetings of the Cabinet, that additional troops should be sent to reinforce the forts in the harbor of Charleston, with a view to their better defense, should they be attacked, and that an armed vessel should likewise be ordered there to aid, if necessary, in the defense, and also, should it be required, in the collection of the revenue. And it is yet my opinion that these measures should be adopted without the least delay. I have likewise urged the expediency of immediately removing the Custom House at Charleston to one of the forts and in the port, and of making arrangements for the collection of the duties there by having a collector and other officers ready to act when necessary, so that when the office may become vacant, the proper authority may be there to collect the duties on the part of the United States. I continue to think that these arrangements should be immediately made. While the right and the responsibility of deciding belong to you, it is very desirable that at this perilous juncture there should be, as far as possible, unanimity in your councils, and with a view to safe and efficient action. To this statement the President replied, The question on which we unfortunately differ is that of ordering a detachment of the Army and Navy to Charleston, and is correctly stated in your letter of resignation. I do not intend to argue this question, Suffice it to say that your remarks upon the subject were heard by myself and the Cabinet, with all the respect due to your high position, your long experience, and your unblemished character, but they failed to convince us of the necessity and propriety under existing circumstances of adopting such a measure. The Secretaries of War and of the Navy, through whom the orders must have issued to reinforce the forts, did not concur in your views, and whilst the whole responsibility for the refusal rested upon myself, they were the members of the Cabinet more directly interested. You may have judged correctly on this important question, 
and your opinion is entitled to grave consideration. But under my convictions of duty, and believing as I do that no present necessity exists for a resort to force for the protection of the public property, it was impossible for me to have risked a collision of arms in the harbor of Charleston, and thereby defeated the reasonable hope which I cherish of the final triumph of the Constitution and of the Union. The other Union members of the Cabinet received the rumor of Mr. Cass's resignation with gloomy apprehensions. Postmaster General Holt, with whom by reason of their kindred opinions he had been on intimate terms, hastened to him to learn whether it were indeed true, and whether his determination were irrevocable. Cass confirmed the report, saying that representing the northern and loyal constituency which he did, he could no longer, without dishonor to himself and to them, remain in such treasonable surroundings. Holt endeavored to persuade him that, under the circumstances, it was all the more necessary that the loyal members of the cabinet should remain at their posts, in order to prevent the country's passing into the hands of the secessionists by mere default. But Cass replied, no, that the public feeling and sentiment of his section would not tolerate such a policy on his part. For you, he said, coming from a border state, where a modified, perhaps a divided, public sentiment exists, that is not only a possible course, but it is a true one. It is your duty to remain, to sustain the executive and counteract the plots of the traitors. But my duty is otherwise. I must adhere to my resignation. In this honorable close of a long public career, General Cass gave evidence of the spirit which was to actuate many patriotic Democrats when the final ordeal came. It was to be regretted that he had not taken issue with his chief when his paradoxical message was read to the cabinet, but much is to be allowed to the inertness of a man in his seventy-ninth year. Lifelong placeman and unflinching partisan that he was, there was still so much of patriotic conscience in him that he could not stand by and see premeditated dishonor done to the flag he had followed in his youth and as Jackson's Secretary of War upheld in his maturer years. If Mr. Buchanan had been capable of amendment, he might have learned a salutary lesson from the manner in which this veteran politician ended his half-century of public service. End of chapter 25. Recorded by Sheila Blunt.